Hi, this is Dr. Ali Sharma with a trigger warning for everyone. You may hear us speaking about life experience in this podcast that have meaning for you, that may be difficult to hear, or that may affect your loved ones. As always, we encourage you to seek help from a licensed mental health professional or other healthcare provider with any questions you may have about what you're going through. Everything in this podcast is for informational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please don't delay seeking help because of something you hear on Model Mentality. Hi, I'm Dr. Ali Sharma. And I'm Bridget Malcolm. And this is Model Mentality, a podcast where we are opening up the dialogue on mental health, one conversation at a time. Today on the podcast, we have Pamela Bell. Pamela is an entrepreneur and founder of Prink Shop, what she created to prove a model she calls creative capitalism. Prink Shop creates advocacy graphics for our most pressing social issues and then translates them onto products that allow customers to wear what they care about. Pamela was a founding member of the global iconic brands Kate Spade and Jack Spade. She co-founded the Bowery Arts Project and also sits on the board of the American Theatre Wing and is a Tony voter. As a passionate supporter of Mental Health Care for All, Pamela joined Kenneth Cole as a co-founder, creative partner and board member in the movement to destigmatize mental health issues July 2019 to form the Mental Health Coalition, which was announced in October 2019 and officially launched May 15th, 2020. We are honored to have Pamela on the podcast today. So Bridget, I am so excited to speak with Pamela because when we were preparing to launch, which then we didn't during COVID, I was watching the movements of Mental Health Coalition, which was founded by Kenneth Cole, and then she was the co-founder. And I love what they're doing on social media because it really brings beauty to mental health because they're focused on branding and brand strategy. And I think that's something that's been so neglected for mental health, like how to make it relatable, how to make it cool, which is also why we're doing this podcast. So I'm just so honored to speak with her today and I can't wait to hear what she says. And what about you? Like, I know because she has, you know, she also was um, co-founder of Kate Spade and Jack Spade. So it affects your industry. So I'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, I'm very, very excited to have her on as well. Obviously, for the same reason, the Mental Health Coalition, I, you know, posted about it in the early days. And I think it's so important and so needed. I think in the fashion industry and in the world at large, but particularly in the fashion industry, it's made up of very creative people. And unfortunately, there has been a string of very high profile suicides and a lot of undiagnosed mental illness in the fashion world. And yeah, I'm excited to get her perspective to see what it's like to be on the other side of it, to be close to somebody who passes away in this way. I think it's a really important and necessary conversation. And I agree because I think, you know, we'll talk to her a little bit about Kate Spade or Katie, as she calls her, because they were very close and, you know, suicide is preventable. So that's going to be a main focus um, at the end of this podcast. And let's get clinical. And what are the warning signs or how can we think about preventing suicide? So thank you so much for coming onto our podcast, Pamela. We are so excited to have you here and honored to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm very excited about talking to both of you. Great. So I want to focus in on three aspects of you and your story. So first, your family background and growing up in a family where mental health was a part of your experience. Second, Kate Spade. 
and third, the Mental Health Coalition. So let's start with the first piece. So I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your childhood. I know you told me that you grew up with siblings who were later diagnosed with bipolar disorder and you described it to me as confusing. So I'd love to start there. And if you could just paint the picture of, you know, what your experience was. So I'm the youngest of three. Um, my eldest sister is eight years older. My brother's five years older. So there's a, a pretty big separation. And I grew up in a conservative family in Ohio. Um, definitely, you know, there was no discussion of mental health or, I mean, even really emotional health, I would say. Mm. You know, feelings were not really subjects. It was, a, you know, it was a time. I think some of it was, you know, family history and some environmental, but it was sort of like, you know, carry on, you know, you fall down, you scrape yourself, you, you know, wash it off and keep going. So mm. I think that that was particularly difficult for both my brother and sister, because I think they felt they've shared with me how, you know, they felt different. And um, I just don't think anyone paid attention to it. So a lot of the, a lot of their, um, behaviors were, I think, you know, reactions to not feeling quite right. So there was a lot of aggression. And I think the confusing part was, you know, the um, cyclical nature of some of the behaviors. Yeah. So, you know, obviously I intimately know what bipolar disorder, how it can look from the outside, let's say, but many people in our society are not so familiar with it. And, you know, we see some depictions in the media or on TV shows, some not so good depictions. Um, but but how, for you and your experience, knowing that everyone has di a different set of symptoms, how would you describe what you saw that now you understand to be bipolar disorder? Um, yeah, I think there was, it was just a lot of inconsistent behavior. Um, you know, one day everything was like great and we were you know, having the best time and doing sort of extreme fun things, riding on go-karts, you know, doing, you know, things that kids would do. And then there was like a dark cloud that would kind of come over and the fun wasn't being had anymore. And, and actually there was like some anger. And I, I think that what happened was I, as the, the youngest sort of felt like, oh, what did I do mm. to, you know, invoke this kind of, you know, dark cloud. So I think that, I think it's common. I've talked to other people where that you end up feeling like it's kind of like your fault, like, uh, you know. Yeah. And I think what you bring up is a very important point because whether it's a sibling or even a parent who has like, let's say anxiety or anger or alcoholism, um, it can have a huge impact on the child growing up in that surrounding. Like what you said, the feedback you get may not be consistent and therefore you're like, what's wrong with me? Or what did I do to upset this person if there's an emotional inconsistency? Right. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's a very, you know, it's interesting on, on, you know, the, the issue was always sort of like the, with them, but then I realized that, you know, there were lots of things that happened during that period that were unsettling to me. And I've had to work on, on my own, wounding and, and my own self for growing up in that kind of inconsistent environment. So you said something about the culture of your family or what I'm calling the culture of your family and communication around emotions. I think that's a really important point to call out because, you know, it is about how we talk about emo our emotions or how we validate 
maybe our children's emotions or those around us that then can dictate how it's expressed in your environment, whether that's a family environment or within a relationship. Um, could you speak a little bit more about, you know, your culture in Ohio or your family? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think feelings were just not, it was not a word that I ever really heard, except for maybe that 1970s song, like feeling, you know, <laughs> that was like, and I remember playing that with my cousin and we were like, oh, feelings, you know, um, I mean, to this day, you know, my father is 85 and it's been now 20 some years that my sister has lived with this diagnosis and he still really doesn't get it. <laughs> He's just like, yeah. what's wrong? Like, what? And I think that, you know, that it, well, part of it is the environment of the United States, I think, with mental health, you know, it's just something you didn't talk about. Exactly. And when you found out um, when each of your siblings were diagnosed later, what impact did that have on you? You know, honestly, it didn't really have, I mean, I was relieved that they were able to get some help. Um, you know, on a shallow side, I sort of felt a little bit, um, you know, it was sort of like validation because, you know, it just seemed like nothing was wrong. And like any kind of issue that I had with any kind of behavior was like on me. Mm. Um, so, you know, it was twofold, you know, I was happy for them to, to know, and it explained a lot, actually. I mean, I guess it's not really validation. It just explained, you know, there were lots of questions that I had. Um, yeah. And, you know, when I'm thinking about my clinical practice while you speak, because oftentimes, let's say, if I do make a diagnosis that gives the person a framework to understand how, what they're experiencing, it can be so helpful, or I get that feedback that it can be so helpful. Um, so you're definitely alluding to that. And this is why we want to do this, right, to talk more about it so that it's more easily identifiable and less confusing and people know how to communicate around it and what to do in terms of getting help and getting the right supports in place. Right. And I think that with a lot of people that have mental health conditions, you know, if there isn't a lot of, you know, support around them they build up these sort of walls of defense. And so you might not really know, like, you know, somebody could be, you know, my sister happens to be extremely successful in her professional career and, and, and always has been. And I think that, um, you know, knowing that there was finally knowing something that, you know, she needed help and, and she got it and she's wonderful and she's thriving and, um, she's a much happier person. Ah, it's so good to hear. So let's switch gears a bit. You are a founding partner of the iconic brands, Kate Spade and Jack Spade. Kate Spade, as we know, I know you call her Katie, mm -hmm. uh, tragically died by suicide in 2018. So could you tell us a bit about your partnership with her, you know, how you met her and your experience working with her? So I met Katie and her then boyfriend who became her husband and our other partner, Elise Ahrens. Um, after I, I had had a, a, a personal loss and was sort of shifting, changing careers and we had a summer share in Amagansett, Long Island where you know where there were four bedrooms and I met them through another friend of mine and we all shared a summer house every other weekend and 
Katie had some samples. I think she had a couple of orders and was doing the business alone and was sort of overwhelmed. And by the end of the summer, I was sort of the manager of the summer share and I'd had an accessory business before. And they asked me if I wanted to join as a, a partner in lieu of a salary and take, you know, ownership. Um, and I, I said, okay, I can do it, but I have to, I have to, I need like a month or so because I'm wrapping something up. And Katie said, um, you know, the deal is on the table to start tomorrow or it's off the table. <laughs> and I was like, all right, what time should I be there? I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> and um, we, you know, we ran the business. I mean, it started out in an apartment on the Upper West Side. We Then we moved to apartment on Park Avenue. Then we moved to a loft on Warren Street. My um, my husband um, had a his parents loaned me their Jeep and we drove to East New York to make bags. And Elise joined us probably six or seven months later. And, you know, we spent the next five or six years really just together, solo flying. You know, we went to Paris, we went to Italy. We it grew pretty quickly. I mean, the first couple of years were kind of slow and then all of a sudden it really took off. And then, you know, I think when we sold it, we had something like 300 employees. We had 18 stores all over the world. Um, it was kind of a, a whirlwind. We used to call it like a, you know, we had a good album and we were on tour kind of thing. <laughs> it was a, it was a lot of work. Um, and she was, she was lovely and fun and great and intense and um we all had a, a passion for the work really for the products that yeah. was our our big thing oh it sounds like an incredible journey you know so i can imagine that you know when you heard about her death it was incredibly painful and i wanted to ask you because many people ask me you know, what are the signs of suicide? What do I look for in loved ones and in my children? And I'll address that later on in our Let's Get Clinical segment. But I'd like to hear from you, you know, in retrospect, did you see any signs perhaps of how she was doing or signs of change that were either obvious or even less subtle? Well, you know, it's interesting that that she was, you know, she always was pretty private. She's a very private person and, and could be a little bit reclusive at times, you know, by nature of being the creative, you know, she didn't really need to be in the office in all of our meetings um, all the time. You know, her, her role was to get out in the world and see things and be inspired and, you know, be creative. So um, there were times when I wouldn't see her for a little bit. And so that was pretty normal behavior. And I think that towards the end, you know, she was, she was a little bit more reclusive. Um, I think that I, I was comparing it actually to something that had happened to me a couple years earlier. I was having a down, you know, just not feeling good. And I didn't really understand why. And a friend of mine said, Oh, I said, I don't really have joy. And she was like, Oh gosh, like, well, do you, do you feel like you don't care if a bus hits you or, you want to put yourself in front of a bus. And I was like, oh, it's more like, I don't really care if the bus hits me. And she goes, okay, you'll be fine. Call this therapist. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and she, and, but, you know, I was ashamed. I felt very uncomfortable. I didn't really understand what was happening. Um, and I thought about that with Katie, because I hadn't seen her in a while. And um, 
I, I was married um, a few months before she passed away and she didn't come to the wedding, which was, that was unusual. Um, she usually showed up even if, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a while. And um, yeah, I, I, I did worry about her. I didn't worry about specifically that, but I was just worried about her in general, like how she was feeling. And, um, you know, it was, yeah, I think that there were signs, but they're not these glaring, you know, neon flashing light signs. So. Um, exactly. And often there are not right for those who actually sometimes complete it. You know, we don't, we may not know. Um, you know, I have a question in the context of your family, right? Would you describe your siblings and then this? So how did, how did, how did all of that impact you and your thinking about mental health? You know, I really, but one of the things that Katie and I would discuss because, you know, she, we were together, I went through a divorce. I mean, she was there when all three of my children were born. Um, mm. We had ups and we had a lot of ups and downs in our business too. We had, you know, people that tried to sue us for things that we didn't do. You know, it was like, we had a lot of strain and stress. And so often we would, you know, we'd sort of talk about it, but we, we really couldn't talk about therapy. We had a code word, which was the contractor. So it was like, I was like, well, did you talk to the contractor about that? You know, it was like, and, and, or she'd say to me, like, how's the contractor, you know? So we, we couldn't really talk about it. And I think that coupled with my family, not ever talking about it, I realized um, this is something that really should be talked about and that no one should feel ashamed to need to reach out or get help. It's not, shouldn't be embarrassing. Um, and I mean, I think shame is the word that actually sort of uh, resounds with me because I think that's sort of how it was in our family. And I think that, you know, she grew up also in the Midwest. And, you know, I, I think that that was our age and culture of our parents. It was like, oh, come on, you'll be fine. Mm. Yeah, shame is a powerful, um, let's say, inhibitor in all of this. Um, but, and we'll talk more about the mental health coalition and what you're doing, but before we get there, you mentioned to me when we first spoke, how the stillness during COVID allowed you to come to terms with everything. Um, and, and people are having a variety of reactions during this pandemic, right? Some more difficult to sit with themselves, others resolving things. So, so can you tell us a little bit about that process for you? Yeah, I think that when, when, um, when Katie was was no longer with us you know it was the shock it was the complete disbelief I'm sure there are stages of of grief um and I think that I bottled it down a little bit I mean I had you know many good cries and Elise and I were you know stuck together a lot and talked a lot um but somehow during COVID, the grief was, you know, I was able to, I mean, I, I cleaned up some things. I found some things from her. I had photographs that I organized and I could feel her. I could just, you know, I really could feel the grief and the pain and um, it allowed me to, to sort of, I don't really believe that you ever like get over things or through things. I think you just accept them as they are. Mm. And so I think it was an, a time for um, acceptance. I mean, that's a beautiful thing to be able to get there, right? Yeah. And to, re 
Yeah, to review and reflect. Um, so not long after she died, you joined Kenneth Cole as a co-founder, a creative partner and board member uh, to form the Mental Health Coalition, which I understand officially launched in May 2020, but you'd been working on it earlier since 2019. So could you tell us, for those who are not familiar, how and why you met Kenneth Cole and, and how the Mental Health Coalition was launched? Sure. Um, so after... I think that the Child Mind Institute actually had called me um, and wanted to do a campaign because through my work um, with my company, Prink Shop, we design advocacy campaigns for social issues. And then we create products, sell them to raise awareness and funds. So I created a, um, a deck of graphics um, with basically with Katie in mind. Um, and it was all about reducing stigma and I was hoping that the CFDA would partner with me and take it on as they had done for um, Fashion Targets Breast Cancer. Um, so I went to the CFDA and presented the deck to them and they really liked it. And they you know, kept it for a week and called me and said, you know, we, we can't take this on fully, we'll support you, but we really think you should meet Kenneth Cole because he's starting a coalition. And, um, and simultaneously, they also invited me to speak on a panel about mental health at one of the CFDA venues. And so I, Kenneth and I spoke to each other and hit it off. Um, and I think I pretty much, you know, joined him on that call. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, oh, this is, this is much better. He's talking bigger. And this is a bigger picture thing. Let me jump into this. Sort of not unlike how I jumped in with Katie, actually. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we wanted to, we wanted to create a community for the purpose of the shared goal to reduce stigma and present resources, change the way people talk about mental health and make it easy to talk about it and just really eradicate the stigma. Um, and so that's how we were, you know, what our focus was. And, you know, a lot of times they say, you know, build it and they will come. We sort of like invited everyone to come before we built it. <laughs> and um, so we have now we have 27 members. I think we started off with eight. The first couple of weeks were just, okay, crisis text line. Okay, I, I met this woman through another friend of mine, let's call the CEO of Crisis Text Line, a founder of Crisis Text Line. Okay, um, Child Mind Institute, let's call Harold Koplowitz and we'd get on a call. Um, I think he had already known the Jed Foundation. Um, you know, there was, he had NAMI, like we, we had different not-for-profits in our, you know, sort of ideas of who should join the, the group. And we just kept you know, Google was a wonderful tool. Um, you know, we would look into things. My All three of my children have um, seen therapists at one time or another, so I knew a lot of organizations through their work. Um, and we just started building the coalition. Um, and so now we have, I think I just said, we have 27 members and growing. And what is the main mission? Well, the, the main mission really is to to catalyze this group together and reduce stigma. Um, it's, you know, having a like-minded community who will work together to destigmatize all mental health conditions. 
and enabling equitable access to vital resources and support for all. So that's, that's really like the mission. Um, and our vision is to see a world where stigma doesn't exist when you talk about mental health. I mean, you're speaking our language, so I love hearing this. And 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 I saw actually the Mental Health Coalition was on my radar early on in the pandemic. I was watching you and saw the branding. And it was a, it's a if for any of you who have not seen it, we'll provide all of the links in the show notes and after in the Let's Get Clinical segment. Um, but you guys have done a beautiful job to make mental health beautiful, also, which I don't think it has always been. Well, you know, it's um, interesting. He had um, worked with Paula Schur from Pentagram, who is, you know, just a brilliant brand maker, you know, graphics person. Um, and she did the branding for us. And that was, I mean, we walked in and, you know, I think we had walked in with a little bit of trepidation and we were just blown away. I mean, she designed the square peg in the round hole and all the colors and the font and she just did, you know, we, we sort of started this as if we were starting a brand, you know? So uh, what do you see outside of just the stigma piece? What do you see as the main challenges in mental health uh, from where we are now? Well, I sort of feel like the stigma is the top of it because it's, there's family and stigma, there's environmental stigma, there's self stigma, which I think is, you know, probably the largest, um, I think that there's funding, I think um, policy, you know, fortunately, one of the groups that we work with is called One Mind, um, and they have a program called One Mind at Work, and they're targeting the CEOs of the largest corporations to join them to start talking about mental health in the workplace, which I think is, you know, fantastic. I mean, there's a, there's a humanitarian case, and there's also a business case, um, you know, I think dis uh, mental health issues are like the number one disability, I believe, um, in terms of, you know, missed work days. Uh, so I think that, I think policy is gonna change a lot. Um, it needs to change, even just the coverage for sessions. You know, there's something like a few therapists have told us that 11 sessions is so much more valuable and can be a cure Whereas insurance is only covering three sessions in some oh, Yeah, definitely. There's value in like short-term intervention, short-term therapy for sure. Exactly. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that those are pretty big challenges. <laughs> <laughs> they are. They are. Stigma alone is a big yeah. challenge. But I, I want to hear more about your one-to-one -one campaign. You know, personally, it's my view that we need to hear more stories. You know, I've had that privilege in my career to learn about the human experience, right? Both physical health, mental health, and it's such a privilege and it gives me so much knowledge and it empowers me. And I don't think, you know, many of my friends have had that experience and this is why Bridget and I are doing this, right? To open up these stories, one conversation at a time so that people can really hear, you know, more an inside view. But with respect to that, please tell us about the one-to-one -one campaign. Sure. Well, you know, storytelling has been proven to be an effective way to communicate and heal from, you know, global cultures for, you know, all of time. So I think that the storytelling piece of that is, has been very important for us. Um, we partnered with Facebook and Instagram and an agency called Lockdown. And 
we went through, I think it was about a six week process where I think there were 18 of us, um, mental health coalition and Facebook and Instagram and lockdown. And we all presented ideas for these digital platforms that they were, you know, honoring, giving to us um, and promoting at Facebook, linking back to their emotional wellness center on Facebook, which is a fabulous resource also. And someone came up with this one. It was created on, on the premise that everyone needs to talk to someone. And, you know, during the pandemic, it's more important than ever. So the purpose of the series is to remind everyone that the first step to dealing with mental health is to connect with someone. And it sort of challenges people to raise their hand and show they're there to support and listen to their friends. And um, so our hope is that through this, um, the viewers will hear the experience of others and it'll help to reduce stigma. Um, you know, it's supposed to promote understanding and empathy and empower viewers to seek support. I think it sounds brilliant. I can't wait to see this unroll and unfold. We have one question that we asked of all of our guests. I'm going to turn it over to Bridget. <laughs> yes. Um, if you had 50 million Instagram followers, what would you want to tell them about mental health? Oh, if I had 50 million Instagram followers, what would I tell them about mental health? I would say, I'm sure this has been said before, but I would just say it's okay it's okay not to be okay sometimes and reach out, get help, explain it, communicate, uh, share your feelings and you're not alone. I think you're not alone is probably, I guess if it's, we're talking to 50 million people, they'll all be together when they see this, but <laughs> I guess you're not alone. So Pamela, Bridget, this is a wonderful conversation. Thank you for taking the time. And I appreciate you yes, both so thank much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, Pamela. You too. Ali, keep, keep going. Now, let's get clinical. What stands out to me from a clinical perspective are three aspects of Pamela's story. First, the role of family and loved ones supporting those with mental health conditions. Second, suicide prevention. And third, advocacy and reducing stigma around mental health. On the first, Pamela grew up in Ohio in a conservative household where there was little discussion of mental or emotional health and with siblings who were later diagnosed with bipolar disorder. She observed as the youngest of three inconsistent shifts in behavior and mood of her siblings that affected her and would lead her to internalize that it was her fault. And because feelings were not discussed in her family, she knows firsthand that family, loved ones, and more communication around emotional health have the potential to play a crucial role in supporting those with mental health conditions. Bridget, Pamela, and I spar a bit more on this topic in our next episode of Model Mentality in our Let's Get Real format, so stay tuned. But to summarize, when Pamela and I first spoke, she said something that so deeply resonated, that one in four, as we know, live with a mental health condition, but four in four are affected. Everyone is affected by mental health, and it's our duty to look out for our loved ones. So on the second, let's talk about how to look out for loved ones in the context of suicide prevention. Suicides are preventable, and yet one person dies by suicide every 40 seconds globally. And did you know that suicide rates have been on the rise with young people and is now the second leading cause of death among age 10 to 34? Alarming indeed. So what are the signs that we should know? 
The first thing to know is that there are things that put people at higher risk for suicide, such as mental health conditions, especially depression, physical health issues, especially pain, traumatic brain injury, stressful life events, chronic and prolonged stress, access to firearms and other lethal means, being exposed directly to someone ending their life, family history of suicide, and more to name a few. Suicides can be both pre-planned and impulsive in a moment of crisis. So what you can do as a human and citizen is to observe changes in your loved ones, in what they speak about, in how they act, and in how they feel. There's always a critical window where you can intervene. For example, the more obvious situation may be someone talking about dying or feeling that they have no reason to live. Less subtle signs may be someone pulling away from you, as Pamela had mentioned with Katie Spade, withdrawing from their life, or with tremendous fatigue and loss of energy, or simply just not feeling like themselves. So what's the takeaway here? If you notice a change in someone in any of these directions, ask how they're doing. Be there for them. Stay connected and help keep them safe. For more advice, please follow the CDC, NIMH, or AFSP. Details will be provided in the show notes. On the third, let's talk about advocacy and reducing stigma. Pamela talks about shame in her interview. In my clinical experience, shame is a huge part of why people don't talk or open up about mental health. It's also a reason why people feel isolated and lonely as they navigate complicated mental health issues. And yet despite this shame, mental health struggles are common, human, and universal. Pamela described how years ago, she would speak about going to therapy with Katie in code, namely, did you talk to the contractor about that? The dialogue has to change, and this is exactly why the Mental Health Coalition was formed. So a quick word on the Mental Health Coalition. The work they are doing is phenomenal. You can follow them on Instagram, at Mental Health Coalition, or on their website, mentalhealthcoalition.org. One campaign that I love is the one-to-one campaign, which I had the pleasure of participating in May during Mental Health Awareness Month. It's created on the premise that everyone needs someone to talk to, which during this pandemic is more important than ever. Check out their Instagram handle for IG Live videos of iconic actors, musicians, athletes, and influencers who opened up every day during May 2021 about mental health in an effort to shift culture and foster a more informed dialogue. So back to Pamela and her remarkable journey. She's merged her knowledge of mental health, both from within her family life and through her friendship with Katie Spade, alongside her business and creative acumen to join Kenneth Cole as a co-founder, creative partner, and board member in the movement to destigmatize mental health in 2019. I can't say enough. I'm honored to have spoken with Pamela and to be witness to the important work and vision of the Mental Health Coalition to see a world where stigma does not exist. Many people struggle with mental health issues, and we want you to understand that you are not alone, that there is power in connection, in speaking up and in asking for and receiving help. Thanks for listening to Let's Get Clinical by Dr. Ali. Please check our show notes for references and more information on this episode. As always, if you are in crisis or you think you may have an emergency, call your doctor or 911 immediately. If you're having suicidal thoughts, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255 to talk to a skilled, trained counselor at a crisis center in your area at any time. 
If you are located outside of the United States, call your local emergency line immediately. What you have heard on model mentality does not represent what would take place during a psychiatric assessment or an actual therapy session. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Model Mentality. If you like today's content, please subscribe to Model Mentality or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. Model Mentality is brought to you by Mind Studios.